You are listening to Sonic Entanglements. Welcome to Sonic Entanglements, a podcast about sound history in Southeast Asia. My name is Mele Yamomo, and in this series, I will speak with historians, musicologists, media scholars, and sound archivists. This is the second episode of a two-part interview with Dr. Nadja Velaskovitz, the head sound engineer of the Phonogram Archive of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. In the last episode, we spoke about the role of the Vienna Sound Archive in Austrian scientific research and how their methods influenced international practices of scholarly sound archiving. This episode focuses on Nadja's and my reflection on how the development of audio recording and technology shifted the questions we ask about sound and how they shaped our listening aesthetics. It is not necessary to listen to the previous episode to follow this episode's topic, but it helps contextualize details of Nadja's work in her institute. What I find extremely impressive is how you, as an archive, not just provide pre-existing technologies, but also in the development of these technologies. As a sound engineer, you are at the forefront of developing algorithms and in developing and improving existing sound recording devices for the needs of sound researchers. My question now is, how do you think does this influence back into research? How does the knowledge in the science of sound recording and engineering shape the questions that we ask about sound? Is there a relationship between the sound technology and sound-based research? Yeah, I think there is certainly a big interaction and especially in our archive, it has always been because we are directly related to the researcher by supporting and it's a both-sided advantage. So we are reflecting, we see, okay, these are the needs of research and we try to fulfill them. And there is a forth and back and certainly there is an influence in research if you use such media because suddenly your critical review gets much more colorful, much wider. You have sources which you never thought about if you stick on all your written traditional sources. Yeah? So audiovisual media, I think, have very much influenced kind of how we reflect things how we look back on developments, I think there's a, there's a big interaction between us. We are so used to using the eyes as primary sense of science and research. The invention of the microscope radically changed science in what it allowed us to see at the microscopic level. The microscope enabled us to see things that we could not see before. It allowed us to see the tiny little parts that composed an entire object, plant or organism. In my own research, I am interested in how this happened with our ears. How would you say this happened in the work you do in sound engineering and the sound technologies that you are describing? How did these technologies that allowed us to hear things that we would not have been able to hear before change how we understand our world? I fully understand it. And 
I'm somebody using spectral tools anytime because I love spectral tools because I don't want to listen only, but I want to see what I listen to. Yeah, And this is fascinating, for example. Our also high resolution. High resolution audio makes it possible that you see things you never thought that they exist. Like interference from somewhere, you can make 384 kilohertz recordings, for example, and then see up to 192 kilohertz in the spectrum. This is something that I never would hear. Yeah? Certainly not from a certain age, yeah, 16 kilohertz or so maximum. Yeah, And then suddenly you can see up in the spectrum like that. I think this certainly has also influenced. And there is another thing I wanted to mention if we talk about that. In ethnomusicology, the actual tendency, or in musicology general, is to use computer aids like music information retrieval tools to compare music sources. Due to the recording technology, music has become an important source for musicology in general. To compare different recordings, different ways of how classical music is interpreted and so on and so on. This is for pop, but especially for classical music. And the researchers usually have the tendency to compare apples with pears with other fruits in one row because they take the oldest recordings of Furtwängler and then they take the newer recordings of this and that and the other one. And they don't think about the fact that technology has a big influence when they analyze what they analyze. So if you do, for example, spectral analysis, you might find artifacts that don't come from the sound of the music instruments, but they come from the recording medium or the recording circumstances. So I'm digging into this topic because it's kind of my personal interest also. And I'm asking myself the critical question, what are ethnomusicologists analyzing when they are analyzing such things? There is the so-called MIR toolbox, music information retrieval toolbox, where you have many, many different tools where you can analyze whatever. And one of these favorite parameters, for example, is spectral centroid. The uh, spectral centroid means you run such and such many examples through this tool, and in the end, it tells you where the spectral maxima are located, where in your audio range are the spectral maxima, where is the highest energy in the spectrum. This is very nice, but it depends. You cannot, for example, you cannot mix up digital recordings with analog recordings or analog recordings that have been digitally restored. Because in this kind, it might be that you have a restoration of a historical recording and there is no noise anymore because it was digitally restored. And there are no high frequencies anymore, in general not, because they have been removed so that there is no noise. And nevertheless, your spectral centroid will say 18 kilohertz, you have a maximum of high frequencies. And this is nothing else than the dither noise that has been added on processing the files. So you analyze a digital artifact that has been introduced by digitization the source and by restoring it digitally. Although your sense says the recording is very dull and no high frequencies anymore, you still hear the strings, but not so good anymore. And the new digital recording is very transparent, has a different spectral centroid. And the historical one basically should have a very low spectral centroid because there are no high frequencies anymore. But the digital artifact falsifies your result. So if you do a musicology and do such media-related research, 
you have to bear in mind that media has made a development and media has its own artifacts. You cannot ignore them. You cannot compare the spectrum of a MP3 recording with the spectrum of a magnetic tape recording. Due to the fact that MP3 is data reduced and due to the fact that magnetic recording has different spectral characterization and also disc recordings have different spectral characterization. So only if you have really a basic knowledge about technology, then you can say, okay, I can compare this. A simple thing, length. So Furtwängert in his very oldest recording did not conduct so quickly because he wanted to have it so quickly. It just was the limit of the media, three and a half minutes. The disc is over. So hurry up. Yeah, there is no time. Do you have three and a half minutes and then the next disc has to be recorded and so on and so on and so on. So you had to record on two discs, three and a half minutes on the first machine, then the next, then change to hear the disc and record and so on and so on. And there's another thing. If you now want to edit all these 12 discs or 15 or 18 of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the first recording, if you want to make one item out of that, you transfer all the discs, you arrange them digitally, and then you want to have one nice item out of it as it was supposed to be performed, but it was not recorded like that, you will still hear the influence of the medium because every of these discs starts with a very bright noise in the beginning. Yeah? And towards the medium of the disc, the high frequencies are lost due to the fact that the constant speed, the way of the style, the length of the track is larger outside than inside. So this is, has a big influence on, on your high-frequency response, on your re frequency response in general. So now you have disc one, the end of disc one sounds like this, and disc two sounds like... <laughs> so you have to do something. You have to somehow digitally restore this and make one item out of these transfers if the intention is to have the full recording published, for example, on CD or somewhere in the internet, in one piece as it was intended. So technology really has a large impact on all the artifacts of technology, but you have to know where they come from. While listening to you, what comes to mind is how these higher fidelity recording technologies also shifted our perception of the sound around us and also our aesthetics. For example, new recordings of classical piano pieces would now include the smallest noise of the hammer and the keyboard springs or the creaking of pedals. So we hear a shift in the aesthetics because of how our ears are sharpened by these technologies. Throughout history, this is an ongoing conversation between the development of technologies and how these technologies shifted our sensorial experience as well as our expectations of experiencing the world. It's a constant conversation. It started in the mono era where recordings were suddenly very popular. You could listen to gramophone recordings and it influenced the buildings of concert halls in a way that the concert halls were designed that they sound very monoral, like the mono recordings. Yeah? So in my diploma work, in my first bigger work, I was thinking in how did a recording change or classical music change in style, more or less, according to recording technology. So I tried to find something like a symmetry 
For example, as you told, the pedal of a piano. How does the invention of reverb influence the pianist in his use of pedal? Is there something? Is there something correlating or not? Or how does stereophonic technology influence the style of stereophonic recordings and things like that? And certainly it is like a wave. It's like up and down. So when you are on the top of a development, like on the top of analog development, and then came digital. So in analog, in the last stage of analog recording, everything had a warm sound. It was a bright, but somehow a warm and comfortable sound. And then came the digital technology and suddenly everything sounded ugh, very funny. Why? Because in the analog technology, the sound engineer was used to place the microphone very close to the instrument because therefore you have the transparency. But due to the difference in quality, I would say difference in quality, you could not hear certain things. Like, for example, the when you press the pedal on a piano yeah, and you have the new felts, you leave it and go Yeah, or bassoon. Yeah, all these noises, as you said, or Keith Jarrett, or people making noises, or breathing. In analog technology, this was handled as a distortion, usually. In the aesthetics of recording classical music, all these string movements and so is more or less distortion. It's unwanted. So it was hidden. Nevertheless, you could go very close to a source with a microphone without having this too heavily in your sound image because the resolution of the medium was not good enough. It was sufficient, but not so good. Suddenly, you had digital technology. Digital technology means 96 dB or let's say in reality 90 dB distortion-free resolution for the CD. Yeah? So now you place the microphone at the same position and you record in digital. And suddenly you hear things because in the earlier days you had 70 dB or let's say 80 dB with a Dolby SR, a very good tape machine, well aligned. But now you had over 90, 90, 90, 40 dB signal to noise ratio with clear and transparent resolution. And suddenly the position of your microphone was not okay anymore because you were hearing all this Yeah, all these noises. So the sound engineers had to remove the microphones a little further away from the sources, which then gave the room more influence. Because the further you are away of the direct source of your instrument, the more room influence, the more reflections, whatever. So you were in search of a good room. Most rooms were not sufficient anymore. Many rooms, many concert halls in Austria, for example, are destroyed due to the fact that traffic is going on left and right and all around, or the subway is driving under this room. Yeah, If you record, for example, in a folk opera, every four minutes you hear the subway driving around. Yeah, So you know exactly the recording was done in the opera house itself. You can recognize this recording. So to find a room with the perfect sound for digital is not easy because you have such a high range. At first you had 90 dB, but now you have 24-bit and 96 kilohertz. So you need even much more dynamics that is free of unwanted noise. So you need a room that is as quiet and as perfectly designed in the reverb because you have to remove your microphone a little further from the source and so on and so on. So this is a whole change in recording technology and also in acoustics and how things sound. So we are used to hear, if we listen to a guitar, we are used to hear it very transparent, very bright, very close. 
that's not real. The real sound of a guitar is never that good as it is on a CD. Never. Or the worst instrument, bass drum. Bass drum in reality sounds... Yeah, there is no kick. There is no... Everything is created artificially in pop music. Yeah, you do a lot to make the bass drum sound like Prince drums. Yeah, so a lot of artificial. But the listener is getting used to the sound, and it's a forth and back reflection. You want to hear it like that. So every bass drum that does not sound like this is somehow uh, not good. Yeah, I am usually bass drum was now it makes. Yeah, so. This is an aesthetics, and this aesthetics is steadily developed further. And at the moment, it's further developed into a direction which is fascinating into 3D surround, mm -hmm. virtual reality things. So this is an aesthetic of its own. So if you have the possibility to set up 20 speakers, where do you position the sounds? Where do the sources? And how do you do this? For example, if you have two speakers, you always have a phantom source in the middle of the speaker. So you have a full picture, even with only two speakers, the brain can imagine the whole orchestra. There is nothing missing. If you record it well and if you position your speakers well, that means that you have a phantom source in the middle. You have phantom sources because otherwise you would have the feeling something is missing in the middle, but it's there. So now if you have surround, you have the problem of phantom sources not only once, you have it everywhere. Always between two speakers, you create phantom sources in your brain and you have to deal with them. You have to treat them as a sound engineer. You have to position them and you can use them as a creative effect, as a part of your sound image. This is a dimension This is fascinating. We are in the very beginning. Well, it's already a little bit developed, but it's nothing you can set up in your room at home so easily, yeah, in your living room. So, yeah. <laughs> Before the invention of recording technology, music or spoken voice existed independently as acoustic sound cultures. Recording tools were created so that these sounds could be captured. But within a hundred years of its invention, we see how the technology itself might have overtaken some of the music or sound culture practices which these media were just intending to record. What is your reflection on this? This is exactly the direction where I'm thinking very much about this reflection of technology and of performance. There are musicians who since ever wanted to be never recorded. They just want to do live recordings and others like Glenn Gould or so, they were fascinated of being recorded. They did not give uh, live performances. So they just wanted to be recorded and hear the perfect sound as their intention was from the recording. So there is a very, very high influence, I think, of both of these worlds. And we have to be aware that even what we call a sound document is not a document. It's just a focus on something. It depends on me. How do I set the focus and on the situation? Yeah? It will never be the same impression as it was over there. But at least we try to give it a comparative situation by choosing this microphone setup or RTF setup. But if, if someone goes along with two of your microphones and puts it there, the other one takes it like this, the third one makes like that, so then we don't have any comparison. And I think for research, well, in the most cases, this is always something 
I'm thinking very much of it and I'm talking very much of it. But in practice, I found out that people are not interested in these details. They are interested in the music itself. How does he play this? How does it sound? This? But not in these technical details. So unfortunately, I would be so curious. I would very much like to look at the average dynamics, at the change of average dynamics due to technology yeah, or things like that or recording length. Recording length immensely influenced the way of field recording, the way of research. In the very beginning, the item to record was two minutes. And now we have endless time. So if you have a big storage capacity in your digital recorder, you can record 20 hours endlessly divided in several files, but you can arrange them in one list and then you can listen 20 hours as long as your battery runs. 20 hours. So in the very beginning, the researcher was focusing, what do I want to capture? I have 100 kilo of equipment. I have only 200 discs and I'm one year in the field. So what can I record? What is worth recording? Two minutes. And then you had four minutes, the shellac disc, which until now gives the length of a pop song. Well, during the last time, it changed eventually a little bit. But nevertheless, the average pop song is three and a half minutes which fits perfectly on every shellac disc. So since those days, everything has to be said in three and a half minutes in our Western culture, not in the Indian Raga, for example, but in our culture, you have to express yourself in three and a half minutes. This is more or less a given situation due to the medium, which gave you three and a half minutes. The length of the LP was chosen to fit the length of a very long classical symphony on one side. Yeah, one sentence of a symphony must fit on one side. So they calculated the longest Beethoven symphony is 33 minutes or 32 or 28. So they gave it 32. So this is the length of an LP. So that classical music fits on it. It's not designed for raga or it's not designed for Arabic music or for Indian folk music or whatever. The medium was designed for European classical music styles yeah, or American. Huh? The canons. The, yeah. But but then it changed. Then it changed due to digital technology. Suddenly we had 74 minutes on the disc, on the CD. The first limit was 74 minutes. 74 minutes. So what should we do? One sentence is 30 minutes. How do, what should we do with all this time? So suddenly conductors started to play all the repetitions. Yeah, The very first CDs, they had the advertising slogan on it, guaranteed 70 minutes of music. Because most of the CDs ended after the two sentences or the two parts or four sentences of a classical symphony, which fit on two sides of an LP. Yeah, 60 minutes, 63. So what to do with the another 14 minutes? To add something yeah, which does not fit to the concept or pff, too much time, too much recording time. Centuries, we had not enough recording time. Suddenly we have too much recording time. In theory, we have endless recording time. So now everybody is documenting everything. This means that the researcher is not selective anymore. The researcher had to select as long as, okay, one hour does fit on my tape or a half speed or half track, two hours or four hours. It's a limit by the medium. But now the limit is not given. So you can document, you, you sit somewhere and you document the whole ceremony from the very beginning to the very end. And so we get 40 gigabyte of data inside now, and there is one minute which is interesting. Nevertheless, we keep the 39.9 gigabyte also, yeah, because we archive everything. But the change of how we do our... Now we are capturing, we are grabbing. 
We are grabbing everything. Also the research on the internet. If you go through databases or whatever, you download papers. I don't know how many you really read. You just collect them. You collect the PDFs. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Then you go over the flow of them. Then you compare with the next one. In the earlier days, you had to get your book. You had to copy the three pages you need. So you had to read through all this and find it and whatever. This has completely changed. You're collecting, collecting, collecting. You're piling up digital trash, I call it. And to orient yourself within this digital pile of trash is sometimes not so easy anymore. And I'm sure that it influences the quality of our research to a certain point. It widens up because we can now get it. Now I have it online. I click on it. I can access Edison Daly's records of his chemical tests from 1904. It's online. Everything digitized. It was a source that, for me, it did not exist in the early days. Now I can use this resource. On the other side, all resources that are not digital, I cannot use. Not in this way. So now the circuit closing again. <laughs> Nadja, thank you for your time in explaining to me and guiding me through your intricate role as the sound engineer of the Vienna Phonogram Archive. Yeah, thanks for your time. It was a master class to listen to your work. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and your thoughts about sound and sound archiving. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sonic Entanglements podcast. I am your host and producer, Mille Yamomo. Thijs van der Geest is our sound engineer and sound editor. And Jean Bersena is our publicity manager. Our theme music is created by Marcus Hogerforst. This podcast is funded by the Dutch Research Organization. If you would like to listen to other episodes of this program, subscribe to Sonic Entanglements at Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more, you can head over to sonic-entanglements.com.